history of science and medicine is a history of power. It is a history of who has the right to claim what exists and who has the right to claim how knowledge should be produced. For the most part, when people in the global north think about medicine in Africa, they think of it as kind of like a tabula rasa, as if Africans didn't have any medical beliefs, or if they did, it's just superstition. There is no single story of the history of science and medicine in Africa or anywhere for that matter. There are histories of sciences and medicines. I'm Dan of Primary Source, and this is what teachers need to know, Africa edition. The podcast that explores current events, history, and culture with an eye towards the complexity and humanity found across this vibrant and diverse continent. The creation of this podcast was made possible through support and collaboration with the African Studies Center at Boston University. What can Africa give to science? What can science give to Africa? These words, these rhetorical questions, were posed by Jan Hofmeier in 1929. Hofmeier was a South African representative at that year's Joint Assembly of the British and South African Associations for the Advancement of Science, hosted in South Africa. Embedded within these two questions is a totalizing worldview of the relationship between Europe, Africa, and progress. In this framework, science is a shorthand for progress. And according to this worldview, Africa is in need of science, and Europe is positioned to grant Africa access to the tools of progress and advancement. In the history of health and healing, and over the course of Africa's relations with the global north since the age of empire, Hofmeier's assumptions are familiar refrains, rather than disparaging outlier sentiments. It's this phenomenon of presuming Africa lacks knowledge and is dependent upon others for advancement that informs the following passage from Mary Inez Lyon's book, The Colonial Disease. Lyons writes, quote, The historian can approach the subjects of disease and medicine in a number of ways. More traditional historians of medicine concentrate on the impressive scientific achievements in Western medicine, beginning their story with medical knowledge and practices of the ancient Greeks and Romans. These groups of historians are generally of the opinion that Western biomedicine is the correct path to pursue in the effort to salve and solve the ills of mankind. Lyons is demanding that historians, and by implication, history teachers and students of history, recognize the implicit and subjective decisions made when framing narratives, selecting what to emphasize, and constructing categories of knowledge, particularly in the context of understanding the history of science and medicine. In the long history of humans' attempts to prevent illness, maintain health, and tend to their bodies, Africa too often has either been displaced from this conversation or presented as a continent in need of intervention from those who possess remedies to their medical maladies. The perpetuation of this narrative denies the contributions that African communities have made time and again to humanity's understanding of how to mend, how to treat, and how to heal. In this episode, we're going to explore the histories of health and healing in Africa. 
will grapple with the intersection of medicine and empire, science and race, but will also reflect on the dynamic and diverse ways that African peoples have developed efficacious practices in their own right. Let's turn to and learn from two scholars and educators who will lead us through this conversation of health and healing cultures across the African continent. My name is Karen Flint, and I am an African historian who focuses on history of medicine in uh, South Africa, but I teach about medicine, health, and healing in all of the continent. So looking at both biomedicine, which is what we would think of as Western medicine, as well as Ayurvedic medicine, because South Africa and many other places in the globe really are places of medical pluralism, where you have a number of different medical systems. My name is Brianna Elliott, and I am a fourth-year PhD student in African history and the history of science and medicine at Yale University. I focus on the history of health and healing in East Africa and the Western Indian Ocean. Before starting graduate school, I was a curriculum specialist in African studies at the African Studies Center at Boston University. I came to that position by way of being a high school history teacher. And I taught world history and a little bit of US history. The history of health, healing, medicine, and science in Africa intersects with the long standing reality of the global North's perceptions of Africa and Africans. So, how has Africa been perceived, understood, and misunderstood in this particular context of medicine? science, health, and healing. Africa is seen as a place of disease and death of tropical diseases, malaria, black water fever, yellow fever, sleeping sickness, baharzia, typhoid, river blindness. And then you've got all sorts of parasites. You can think about HIV, AIDS, Ebola. To a certain extent, right, that is true, right? There are these challenges to people's immune systems in Africa. This is why Europeans dubbed West Africa as the white man's grave. This is why Africans themselves, particularly in West Africa, didn't always give their children names until they were of a certain age. But with that said, it is more than that, right? And Africans themselves have been dealing with these diseases. They know the environment. They recognize the vectors and they've come up with their own ways of coping with it. So we can talk about like indigenous knowledges. And that refers not only to like the environment and what areas might be dangerous and setting up environmental controls to maybe control tsetse fly, but also would refer to like the herbs that are available to resolve these types of issues. They didn't actually see the medicines or the practices that they had as being kind of effective alternatives for healing. That's continued to be a major problem when you've got well-meaning people going in, not understanding the culture, not understanding the political situation, and making all sorts of demands with regards to public health. And it's then read as Africans are superstitious, right? They don't understand biomedicine instead of trying to read it from like the cultural context. Why were African approaches to health and healing dismissed and underappreciated by the West for centuries? The categories we use to describe what is health and what is healing and what is medicine and disease 
are historical and they are constructed and they are often deeply embedded in sort of structures of power and claims to authority and claims to sort of knowledge and representation. There is a lot of power in determining the boundaries of what is and is not quote-unquote science, right? It provides people with a certain amount of legitimacy to say that certain types of knowledge are valid while others are not. I try to break down these binaries of science and culture where biomedicine is juxtaposed as objective, value-free, laboratory-based, dynamic, adaptable, but traditional medicines are influenced by society, they're cultural, they're static, they're inflexible. Medical cultures around the world are also based on empirical observation. They're also based on testing. They have been proven efficacious under both kind of vernacular ways as well as biomedical ways of understanding the world. Within the context of thinking about medicine and health and science in Africa, it critically is essential to remember that traditional medicine or, and how we frame traditional medicine and uh, indigenous knowledge is not static, that those terms themselves too need to be historicized and that these ideas and practices that they represent are often products of, of long histories. And that like traditional medicine, Biomedicine and Western medicine is not traceable to a single origin. It is a product, like traditional medicine, of engagement, of change, of tensions, and of power. Moving beyond a binary of tradition versus biomedicine, what are other ways that we can understand people's relationships to health, wellness, their bodies, and their communities in the context of studying Africa. What are other frameworks and lenses? Let's start with one in particular, the idea of healing cultures. So what exactly does this term, healing cultures, actually mean? When I refer to healing cultures, there are two reasons that I use both of those words. One, I use healing as a broad term to encompass all of the work that goes into being healthy and being well, that doesn't necessarily imply a particular approach to how one finds or defines themselves well or healthy, nor does it sort of hint at a particular approach to making someone well or to addressing situations in which someone is unwell. I use the word healing versus medicine or disease. And I use the word cultures in plural for two reasons. The first reason um, is that I avoid the use of system and systems in part because the idea of a system can convey the notion that something is static or closed or that it is entirely operating on consistent logics and rules and procedures regardless of sort of the circumstances or the context. And that's certainly not how healing and health works, no matter where you are. And I use cultures in plural to say there are many different ways in approaching health and healing and how we define those terms. And those approaches can coexist, commingle, co-create one another. And I use the term healing cultures to represent that 
possibility of of multiplicity. It's impactful to focus on place-specific and descriptive accounts in which communities across history through to the present in Africa and in the diaspora have been active knowledge producers and consumers, especially in the context of health and healing and science. So on the African continent, if we're thinking about healing in particular, historically healers were an important part of the social and political structures. And health was conceived as much broader than just sort of the individual's body or sort of an an individual malady in someone's physical body. And it extended to include social health and the well-being of social relationships as a critical aspect of one's own health. And health and healing were not limited to just botanical knowledge and physical interventions. And sometimes when we sort of focus on just the botanical knowledge, we, we miss sort of the other ways in which health and ideas about health and healing and harming operate. Let's look at European colonialism in Africa and situate this conversation of health and healing within a broader understanding of empire and what transpired as European states built their empires in Africa. There's a long history of colonialism and biomedicine in Africa. A lot of historians of medicine have talked about biomedicine as a tool of empire. It not only provides medicine for Europeans, so European bodies can survive better in the tropics, but it's also used discursively to legitimate the ends of colonialism. So Africans are described as being immune to certain diseases. So you don't have to take any precautions to preserve their health. They're described as reservoirs of disease, and therefore uh, medicine is used as a way of kind of justifying segregation uh, between Europeans and Africans uh, throughout the continent. Then you've got the discipline of psychology, which basically pathologized Africans as the other. They described them as, you know, being mentally different, intellectually inferior. Um, they even described like anti-colonial movements such as the ones in like uh, Madagascar in 1947 or Mau Mau in the 1950s as a result of like deculturization and a collective instability. Right. So all that, of course, is false. Right. But it was like, you know, described in these very kind of scientific terms for why this was happening. And, you know, for the most part, you know, a lot of the biomedical directives were very coercive. They're very top down and, you know, basically isolating people into camps and forcing vaccines and medicines. Those were all ways of trying to, you know, up the productivity of Africans. So in those ways, it is a tool of empire. When biomedicine came to Africa, it came with the settlers, it came with missionaries. These are people who didn't have a lot of power when they first came to Africa. But they were offering something that was new and different. And there was there was always an interest. And so to a certain extent, biomedicine, as well as African healing cultures, they were open. There was an exchange that was taking place. And so you have Africans trying European medicines. You've got Europeans who are trying African medicines. As Europeans gained power, And as biomedicine became more professionalized, it became more confident, then they started competing with African healers. And it becomes a part of this wider discourse 
in talking about Africa. And instead of talking about them as rational human beings, they're irrational, they're superstitious, and therefore they need to be ruled. And so medicine just becomes like another example of this kind of paternalism. A lot of scholars have shown how both medicine and other scientific disciplines, such as agricultural science, botany, were formed and reworked in the context of empire and colonialism. And that in that process, there's borrowing and stealing and collaborating uh, with and from local African and African descendants to develop new, new theories, new medicines, new products, etc. A lot of botanists were very interested in African medicine. You have these botanists who are basically going to African healers and finding out what do you use these different herbs for? It's just that the biomedical community spends a lot less time and has a lot less interest in looking at those types of herbs and remedies because they're not going to make money off of them, even though they might be very efficacious and help people. What happens in South Africa and has happened in other places as well is that a lot of these herbal remedies remain in demand. People still want them, even as they're exposed to biomedicine, right? You may be treated by three people. You may be treated by your minister, you may be treated by a traditional healer, and you may also be treated by biomedicine, right? So just because you use biomedicine doesn't mean that you're an orthodox user and you're not going to use any other systems. Colonialism was about redefining Europeans to themselves in relationship to other people in the world. The way in which you think about your body and your health in many African societies is related to ancestors, is related to ideas about witchcraft. When they saw witchcraft in Africa, Europeans uh, were upset about that. And so they wrote to their home communities trying to do fundraising and they would talk about the witch doctor and these tropes of superstition and witchcraft take off in a lot of the the stories the diaries that are coming out of africa what were some of the consequences of european disregard for the way african peoples understood health and created geographically and culturally specific approaches to wellness homes were generally built away from malarial habitats. When Europeans come, they they don't know that this is what Africans are doing, and they actually facilitate the movement of people into these zones where people had purposefully been excluded. And therefore, you're going to see this increase in death and disease that kind of accompanies the first 40 years or so of colonialism. Dr. Chakanetska Mavunga, looks at sort of tsetse fly policies in Southern Africa, especially Zimbabwe. And in his work, he documents and demonstrates how African knowledge about tsetse flies and the ways in which their distribution is linked to sleeping sickness and other illnesses was used to inform policies about land management and by the British colonial government. But while colonizers built on that knowledge and used that knowledge to inform policies, they often did so poorly, ignoring the contributions and the knowledge of Africans who had so much experience with living in these particular environments. And ultimately, 
led to poor policies that increased the prevalence of tsetse flies and the deadly sleeping sickness. Africans knew how to deal with certain sicknesses, what to do if you got bitten by a snake, what to do if you have like excessive bleeding. You had specialists who are like setting bones. In Southern Africa, you also have plaster casts that are applied for bone setting. They are doing enemas or doing vapor treatments for fevers. There's also bloodletting and cupping, which is very similar to what the Europeans are doing. They're doing minor surgeries. In East Africa, European travelers reported witnessing cesarean sections and the suturing of large wounds with the mandibles of ants that were held securely in place and then snipped off their backsides. And in Southern Africa, healers had discovered how to heal sepsis. And biomedical doctors continually complained that these Africans who were in the hospital who had sepsis and they needed to amputate their legs or their arms had run off and disappeared. And then they would see them months later and their limb would be intact and they would be fine. And they didn't understand how they did it, but they could see clearly that they were successful in doing that. So talking about that history, giving examples can help to counter this narrative of African healing cultures as being ineffective or non-existent. In what ways have African people been involved in the development of biomedicine? What have the power dynamics been within this sphere of exchange and engagement with biomedicine? If we wanted to bring it to sort of the more contemporary moment, there's also a lot of really rich work on on sort of the research and contributions of Africans and African scientists and physicians that has impacted the work and medicine and sort of biomedicine today. Recent work, and a recent scholar has been working on that is Marisa Mika, who just published a book called Africanizing Oncology, looking at sort of the history of the Uganda Cancer Institute from 1967, uh, which was founded in 1967. And she documents this history of that institute in order to sort of demonstrate how a lot of the research that comes out of this institute still today, but also historically, were vital sources of knowledge about cancer. And that is relevant and used and circulating among medical communities more globally. Africans have contributed to biomedicine, both as biomedical practitioners. We have Africans who were trained in Europe, trained in America fairly early on, 19th century, who contributed to knowledge about tropical medicine. But for a long time, African biomedical practitioners have basically acted as kind of like glorified like lab assistants of researchers and scientists in the global north. Most of the labs have been in the global north. That's starting to change you. And so you're starting to see a lot of that type of biomedical research coming out of those labs within Africa. Africans themselves have participated as biomedical practitioners, as biomedical researchers. And so many of these traditional medicines were then incorporated into biomedicine, but without kind of knowledge of who was behind that. Because global health is essentially laboratories in the North, researchers from the North were then using 
uh, African scientists and African doctors as their like lab assistants. They're really perpetuating these older hierarchies. And they also are the ones who are determining what we're going to research, right? So malnutrition in Uganda was a huge issue, but all this money was flowing in for HIV AIDS. And so the government wasn't going to say, no, we're not going to take this. But then that's influencing what the researchers in Africa themselves and the governments themselves want to be prioritizing. So if you if you really want to have health sovereignty in Africa, you have to have the laboratories owned by Africans, and they have to be able to set the agenda. Health sovereignty should come from within in terms of deciding what's important, you know, what's culturally relevant, and making sure that you have the the means with prioritizing those health issues. I mean, we tend to think of Africa, we think about communicable diseases. We don't think about diabetes. We don't think about cancer. I mean, these are also huge issues in Africa, which you know most researchers in the global north are not even thinking about. They're not even thinking about like contributing and helping with ontological care. There has been this long history of medical experimentation in Africa. So sometimes biomedical doctors are just trying to figure out what works, but they don't do it with this recognition that we need to have consent. I need to to tell this person exactly what we know about this medicine, how likely it is to be successful or not to be successful in the way that we've mandated. The histories of healing cultures are not necessarily the most deeply entrenched of topics in history and social studies classrooms. However, the narratives that teachers introduce, the lenses they adopt, and the objectives that motivate what we teach and how we teach change over time. So why should these histories, histories of the many ways African peoples have constructed understanding of health and wellness, be introduced in classrooms? I think fundamentally, the history of healing and health and medicine and science is essential to any history that we tell. Studying the, the history of science, medicine, and healing provides another lens for understanding and appreciating human experience and all of its complexities. It's all about creating empathy, is trying to understand how people conceive of the world, their health, their body, why people make the choices that they do. For educators who are interested in bringing in the history and study of health and healing and science from the context of Africa, I think the challenge is really to encourage students and ourselves to be critical about the authoritative narrative of the categories of science and medicine as universal. My use of the word healing cultures is encouraging us to really think like, what do we mean by medicine? What do we mean by health? What do we mean by disease? And as students investigate those categories in their own life, in their own understanding, I think that there's a place that we can then bring in the history of ideas and how the ideas of what is healthy, um, what is disease, what is sick, what is science, how do we produce knowledge, what causes us to be healthy, what causes us to be sick, all of those things are historically contingent 
and really deeply involved in a broader history of social history, cultural history, political history, environmental history, um, and then brings students and ourselves into a history of ideas that doesn't sort of place Africa and African-inspired healing arts as sort of an addition to what we're studying, but really allows us to contextualize the things that we are studying or experiencing and living in, in a way that challenges the naturalized categories, the history of science, medicine, and healing in Africa, or anywhere else for that matter, is critically representative of the history of politics, power relations, economics, the environment, you name it. I think essential to sort of what this particular history allows us to do and sort of essential to teaching this particular history is making clear the stakes that ideas and practices in a given moment have if we want to understand why certain ways of healing, conceptualizing disease and harm, and conducting science and thinking about how people produce knowledge are seen as valid and legitimate versus others. I think studying health and healing in Africa makes those politics clear and allows for students to challenge this narrative that biomedicine or Western medicine is timeless or even Western in nature. The history of health and healing has the potential to help students reevaluate their understanding of categories and the presumed naturalness of certain types of knowledge. But where exactly, where precisely in the curriculum can this happen? In the scope of history education, where can these conversations live and naturally extend from the content that's already commonplace in classrooms? In the context of teaching the history of science and medicine in Africa, there are so many ways to do it. I think in U.S. history, there's an incredible place for it. One, of course, it's within the context of the founding of, of the U.S., the context of the transatlantic slave trade, and talking about and teaching about slavery. These are all really, really important places where one can think about how the transatlantic slave trade was a process in which knowledge and people and ideas and plants and products were were being moved often forcibly and under sort of the constraints of enslavement but that does not mean that people were not bringing ideas and were not bringing strategies of health and ideas of health and sort of what counts as health into the context of enslavement and that that wasn't informing medical practitioners there's lots of really incredible work on the history of medicine and empire that I think allows teachers to think critically about those histories, thinking about world history and the standards in world history in the context of colonialism, decolonization. There is often an invocation of the ideas about civilizing and civilizing mission. And those necessarily have to be taught as part of that curriculum. You can't teach about colonialism without teaching about the ideas that colonial powers and colonial agents used and repeated to themselves to justify and explain the colonial mission. And when you start looking at that and start having students sort of explore some of these ideas that are 
taking place in, in, in these primary sources, what comes out is sort of ideas about tradition, about civilizing. And then you can have students examine, well, what does that mean? What is, what is sort of conceived, seen as traditional? What is seen as civilizing? And what does that tell us about what kind of knowledge is valued and what kind of knowledge is not valued? And a big part of that history is about health and healing and well-being. These are really, really huge ideas and really, really important to talk about in the classroom because they are the foundations of critical thinking. If students don't come out of a history or humanities classroom, understanding that how people talk about something is political and is historically contingent, then they haven't received the most essential part of an education. That's it for today's episode. What Teachers Need to Know Africa Edition is a production of Primary Source, an education nonprofit dedicated to bringing the world into classrooms through professional development and curriculum. To learn more about Primary Source and to explore our podcasts and our other resources further, visit www.primarysource.org. Thanks to the African Studies Center at Boston University, whose support and collaboration made the creation of this podcast possible. To learn more about the center, visit www.bu.edu Africa. And to learn more about the center's Teaching Africa Outreach Program, visit www.bu.edu Africa slash outreach. I'm Dan from Primary Source. Thanks again for listening.